Huge honor tonight to be interviewing Ori Spado out of California. Now, I've been watching some of his videos on YouTube, and he has a book out called The Accidental Gangster about his life from insurance to becoming a mob boss. Ori has mixed with some of the biggest names in the mafia community, and also he's rubbed shoulders with people who've killed dozens of other people. So we're going to be getting to the harder-hitting stuff later on, but I'd just like to start out, Ori, asking, where was it, you grew up in America, and where was your family descended from? Uh, we're from Calabria, Italy. But I grew up in a small town upstate New York, Rome, New York. Uh, and from there, uh, eventually New York City. And I lived in Florida, but I've been out here in Los Angeles for over 40 years. As a kid, did you see the local gangsters? Did you think, like, what is this lifestyle these guys are living to be wearing these flash clothes and having all this money? Or was it later on when you fell in with them? It was, it was later on that I actually saw it. Uh, uh, after I did some uh, uh, research on my ancestry uh, through my aunt and through a dear friend of mine, Frank Russo, Frank Russo's father was the boss in upstate New York. And on Saturday mornings, Frank Russo, who became a lawyer, used to open the cellar doors and let just a few guys go in for Saturday meeting. One of them was my grandfather. Our name back then was Spada, S-P-A-D-A. -A. Uh, and Frank was well known throughout the country. He was a lawyer, but he still knew everybody. And he was the guy that everybody went to for favors. And I'm very close with his son, uh, uh, Drew Russo. And I keep kidding Drew. I said, it's all your father's fault. Because <laughs> his father introduced me to Frank Costello, the Russell Buffalino, who Joe Pesci just played, and the Irishman, uh, Carlo Marcello, uh, and, of course, Sonny Franchese. Do you want to explain to people, because I've got a lot of people in the UK watching this, and they may not be familiar with those names. Do you want to run down who those people are? Well, Frank Costello was one of the original guys with Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky going way back. He was a gentleman. Uh, he ran Tammany Hall, ran the politics. Uh... Russell Buffalino was known as the Quiet Don uh, from Pennsylvania and parts of upstate New York. And he was quite a guy. As you saw in the movie, Joe Pesci played him perfectly. And then Carlo Marcello was out of Louisiana, New Orleans. And he's one of the people, along with Santo Tripicana and other, that they say was responsible for the assassination of President Kennedy. So they had the, the Mafia Council, the various families. Can you explain what that is and which family you're talking about? Well, the family that the U.S. Attorney has me with is the Colombo family. 
I always considered myself a renegade, but of course, U.S. attorneys think differently, as you well know. Uh, but uh, I was with the Colombo crime family, and uh, uh, with Sonny Frances, who we've been friends for over 40 years, and we still are to this day. Sonny's 102, and we talk about once every week or couple weeks. And I'll tell you, at 102, he's got all his mind there. Yeah, I've watched him on YouTube, and I've watched his son's videos on YouTube as well. So we've jumped ahead a bit. You've mentioned some huge names in the old-school Mafia upper tier. I'll tell you, one of the best guys that I ever met and became my one of my best friends is Joey Pyle from London. Joey Pyle was my best mate. I can't say enough about him. I can't say enough about the boys in London. Today, Joey's son is like, he calls, my, he calls me his father. Uh, from the U.S., I call him my London son. Uh, we're still close. And uh, I've known him for years. Uh, Roy Shaw, Dave Courtney. Uh, damn, I met everybody over there. In London. Yeah, I've had Dave Courtney on, on the uh, podcast here. Yeah. And I, I had operations in Arizona. I was trafficking in Arizona. Ended up with a similar case to you. So that was at the time when Sammy the Bull Gravano was out there when he was doing his thing. Oh, yeah. you uh, Yeah, that's right. I read that in your thing. You and I actually had similar background <laughs> rico cases <laughs> we both got rico cases but we you were in the financial business i was in the insurance business and financial business so we got that and maybe it's our experience in those that made us good at what we became <laughs> salesmen salesmen you um said that you clicked up with these guys later in life. It wasn't a childhood thing. You weren't like seeing them and idolizing them. So no. what was your what was your childhood like then? Were you stable? My childhood, uh, my father made $35 a week. Uh, we uh, had, uh, besides me, I had two brothers, three sisters. Uh, I, you know, it was uh, humble, but my father was able to provide. And my mother was a great cook. We had a garden, and it was actually, you know, pretty normal uh, childhood upbringing. And was it quite or, tough? Was your neighborhood quite tough? Did you say it was Rome, New York? Rome, New York. Was, that, was it tough, though? Was it what? Was it tough in that neighborhood? Uh, no, you know, I, I got in a lot of fights. I was a guy that came to. I took care of a lot of things for other kids. Uh, things like that there. I was just a scruffer, and, and I fought. Uh, and then everybody I fought, we became best friends. <laughs> so what made you get interested in insurance? Insurance seemed like a, it came to me so natural, I can't explain it. <clears throat> I became, uh, I was with a Prudential, 
and uh, became a member of the Million Dollar Life uh, Life Tape Roundtable. Uh, it was quite an experience. I was making a lot of money. Uh, you know, I was a young kid. I'm making freaking $500 a week. I'll never forget, there was an agent sitting next to me in the office. Friday's was payday. And I happened to glance over when he opened his check. And here's an older guy with a family, with children, and all that there. I was still single. And his check's like $150. And mine's over 500 what year was this? That was 1960-something. So that was a huge amount <laughs> of money. 1968. 500's huge. Yeah. And money just never stuck with me, though. I don't know why I always spend it. <laughs> what did you blow it on? I had no idea. <laughs> the hell I could tell you. But, you know, I spent money. I gave money away. Uh, uh, I made a lot of money in my lifetime. And what caused the crossover to associating with the mafia? It just became a natural thing. And how it happened, it's really funny. I, I it just came so naturally to me. Uh, the first time I met Sonny Franchese, <coughs> I remember meeting him with a, a Lou Perry, who was a casting director. The guy that discovered D. Martin Jerry Lewis brought me to meet Sonny because a friend of mine's life was being threatened. And I met Sonny and I met his kids who were all little kids at the time at the uh, Trattatoi Siciliana on, on 2nd Avenue. And we had dinner. And uh, what's that thing that popped up? You got some on your screen? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's on your screen. It's okay on this end. Oh. I, I can still see All you right. fine. And uh, so where was I? Uh, you went to dinner? Uh, we went to dinner. And it was a dinner that they would never forget me. Because... Sonny and I sat there, we're whispering to each other, I explained it to him what the problem was with my friend. And he said that he would look into it, give back to me. And I gave him my number in Florida and my number to my office in upstate New York. And uh, then we ate and I ate a fish. I became allergic to it. Mm. And I... I was vomiting my guts out on 2nd Avenue and down in the toilet. It was bad. He had two guys, uh, Johnny Irish and uh, Red Crabby, bring me to the hospital. And I remember I'm waking up and the doctor's asking these guys, what's his name? And the guy says, you don't need to know that, doctor. Just get him well. <laughs> what's your name? Doc, don't ask no questions. Just get them well. <laughs> and both those guys were drivers for Sonny at one time. And they both, they're both dead now. Uh, Johnny Irish ended up dead in Florida. So what was the first work you were putting in with your association? Well, what happened was at that meeting, Sonny did get a hold of me. 
And then we had him sit down in New York, and it happened to be with his stepson, uh, Michael Frances. And it didn't go that well for Michael. Michael was wrong in what he was doing. And uh, Michael and I never got along since then. And Michael became an informant, as everybody knows. And now he's a born-again Christian, he proclaims. Uh, do I believe that? No. Well, at that meeting, you said what Michael was doing was wrong. What do you mean by that, at that meeting Michael, specifically? Michael was having somebody robbing warranties. Name of the company was Polyglycol. No need to ever shine your car again. Guaranteed for three years. And Walter was just big. With, every time you turn the TV, you see the ad. And he gave the distributorship for, it was Nassau, Suffolk County, Long Island, to his brother-in-law, who happened to also be Michael Franchese's brother-in-law. And they were selling an inferior product, but claiming it was polyglycol. And they were stealing the warranties from the bottom out of Walter's office, from the bottom of the pile. Now, the only way Walter found out about it was they started getting claims on warranties that they never issued. And so Walter was going to take the distributorship, and Michael started calling Walter Fison and threatening his life. Walter called me. I said, Walter, nobody's going to call you and threaten your life. They're either going to kill you or they're not. I said, but people don't call up and say, I'm going to come and kill you. I said, you're not going to have a warning. So it's bullshit. And then Walter asked me to fly into New York. I was living in Florida in my condo there. And uh, asked me to fly in to close. Victor Potapkin, who was the largest Cadillac dealer at that time. So we went, we closed them. We went to Club 21 for lunch. Walter went to make a phone call, comes back, what is the goal? Leans over, he says, kid, I know you're wired in. Got, you got to stay and find out. And that's what happened. I did, I stayed, I found out. And as it turned out, it was... Michael Franchet. And so Sonny called us all. We had a meeting at the Russian Tea Room. And uh, otherwise, after that, the only other time I saw Michael was. Uh, do you know anything about Michael Franchet? Yeah, I've watched most of his interviews on YouTube. All right. Michael Franchet, when he got out of prison, uh, his brother was living out here. Asked his brother if I would meet him. And there used to be a place I hung out over on Santa Monica Boulevard called the Rangoon Racket Club. I said, have him meet me there at 5 o'clock. I got there. Michael was there. I took him in the alley. He said, what do you need, Michael? He said, well, you know, he said, we're I said, no, you broke the mold, Michael. I said, but what do you want to see me for? He said, well, you know everything's going on here in town. I'd appreciate it if you could let me know if any strangers fly into town. I said, if your father asked me to do it, Michael, I'll do it. And he said, okay. And that's, he reached out to me. I never reached out to Michael for anything. I don't need Michael Franchise in my life. 
But uh, Sonny called me the following week. Sonny was in prison. I asked Sonny. He said, don't do a damn thing. So I didn't do nothing. Uh, how, come, how come Sonny ended up in prison? Uh, the Sonny ended up in prison several times. Uh, basically, it stems from he originally got 50 years on a robbery where other guys were robbery. Uh, uh, banks, uh, bank robberies, and throughout the whole country, I guess it was. And he got 50 years on it, and supposedly had nothing to do with it. I believe he was actually set up because the guys tried to say they paid tribute to Sonny, and Sonny didn't even know these guys. And he was, it, it was a setup. He ended up getting 50 years. I think uh, got out at the 12, and he become the most violated person. I mean, he violated his paper so many times, over six times. They kept, just kept going back to prison. And then his last indictment was the indictment uh, with the Colombo family, which I was in. I was on that indictment as well, and. Yeah, that was his life. He's so, 102. Going, going back to your life then, you, you've described how you met the um, Sonny and Michael. So what kind of work were you then putting in for the Columbos? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. I had my thing going out here in California. A lot of things I did are legitimate. What I did that was not legitimate, I kept to myself. I'm not going to go tell everybody what the hell I'm doing. I hear you. What, what stuff can, what stuff can you talk about? Huh? What stuff can you talk about? What do you want to talk about? Oh, um, what work you were doing that, that was legitimate oh, in, I, Holly, in Hollywood? I was marijuana. I was flying marijuana from Arizona weed uh, every couple of weeks, 500 pounds from, from Arizona into New York. And distributing it, uh, that was a good gig for for a while. What year was that? Actually, I think that was in the two thousands, early two thousand. Okay, so that was when we were active in Arizona. So you were getting the weed coming up from Mexico, and then I had a guy it. in Arizona. He had a home, took the weed. We had the pilot, great pilot, older guy. Loaded his plane. It was good. And I had my driver from the city. We I had different airports uh, that we scoured in upstate New York. Plane would fly in, unload, out. And uh, I had it brought to a location in, in Brooklyn. I'd have my guys lined up. You get 50 pounds, you get... Depending on what line of credit I gave these guys. And I wasn't around that weed for longer than five minutes. <laughs> distributed it, went to my hotel in Warwick, and then in the evenings they came with the money and paid me. So they're calling you a Hollywood fixer. Exactly what does that mean? <clears throat> well, uh, Hollywood fixer. I began with Dino De Laurentiis and Ralph Serpe. Uh, who I also met through Frank Russo, 
I met them at the filming of the Brinks job in Boston. And uh, so we became close. I come to California. And a lot of times there would be a problem with the studio and agent, actors and actresses having problems. And they, they called me. And I resolved the issues. It was like selling insurance. It was very easy <laughs> to convince the people why they should do the right thing. It came as a second. I never needed a gun to do and anything. And could you give an example of the kind of communication involved in that? Oh, well, there was one. There was an actor, uh, 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 a big actor that everybody would know action guy and uh, agency owed them two million dollars and they would not release it because the producers they were waiting for the producer and the producers were having an issue because of something the actor didn't do and having to be two producers one who lived in los angeles the other who lived in vancouver so i contacted the, the guy who lived in los angeles he met me at the four scene. We had a talk. He understood who he was talking to. We set up another meeting where his partner came in from Vancouver. We sat down. We ironed it out. They called the agency and had the money released. But unfortunately, that action star became an informant on another case in New York. And I never got a nickel. I never got a thank you from him. Jeez. Someone who was more reliable paying you was Shug Knight. What was your relationship with him? Shug was a good guy. There was a guy from London that uh, Joy introduced me to because I had a, uh, I had a stock of inventory from Universal of uh, DVDs and DVDs, whatever they were in those days. And he wanted to buy them all. We agreed on the price. And Ron Winters was a master of telling you he wired the money. <laughs> and he never wired it. And I'm waiting for like a fool. And he comes up, well, the Bank of London, and then it went to this bank, and, you know, it takes longer. I mean, finally, I realized, all right, the guy was. And when he was fly in the Los Angeles, he would stay at a hotel, but never use his own name. So you couldn't find this fucker. <laughs> and one day, a producer had a meeting with him at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and told me that this guy, Ron Winters was his name, was flying in. He had a meeting. I said, okay, I said, I want you to come down. Let me know what room number. I'll be at the bar. Well, as it turned out, when the producer got there, Shug Knight was there. Because it happened to be the guy that also had death row, had the distributorship to distribute death row in England. But Ron Winters was distributing death row all over Europe. And he owed a ton of money to Shug. So when this guy told me, he said, there's this crazy guy, this Ori, he's very serious. He's going to throw him out the window. Shug came down to the bar, and that's when we met. 
and he asked me not to do anything, and he says that we will we'll make money on something else as other things. And uh, so we uh, one day Shook called me. I went over to his office, met with him, and he told me this guy owed him millions of dollars. So Joey and I made an agreement, Joey Pyle. We made an agreement with Shook that we'll do, collect the money for less commission than we normally would. But we wanted to do it every month, and we'll make sure this guy pays. We'll get up our own bookkeeper, put him in Ron's office, and we got, Joey got the first million dollars, was wired to Suge. By that time, Suge was violated, I believe, and was in prison up north. But he called his lawyer, and 10%, next day, 100 grand was in my bank. Wow. Kept his word. And, uh, of course, I took care of Joey and Joey in, in London. And we were all happy, but then his, I became close with the guys in his office, and we wanted for Joey Jr., who flew here, him and my son, to be on the visiting list so we can continue to deal with Shug. And they assured us that they were on the list, so Joe flew in, my son Anthony picked them up. They had to fly in someplace up north to rent a car. They get to the prison, they're not on the list. Mm. So we never got the opportunity to collect any money, any more money, but you know, Sugar and I remained close. And you know, we would run each other in the Four Seasons or other places. And even when I was away, he would run into my son and Always send his love. So I got nothing bad to say about Suge Knight. What do you think about the case he's in for now? The case against him? Yeah. I think, uh, I don't think he should have gotten all the time that he got. Uh, they were going to try to kill him. I firmly believe it was probably an accident. He didn't kill that, run over that guy and intentionally that's my belief and others believe the same thing but then again he shook night he was notorious and you know when the government wants you they're going to get you right or wrong most people don't understand how the system works and in this country they keep my next book's going to be called My Journey Through the Judicial System. It's going to be quite a different book because I'm going to show people what the Bill of Rights says and what they really give us and my interpretation of the Constitution. You hear that every day if you turn on the TV today. They talk the constitutional right. What freaking rights do we have? I mean, I'm not allowed to smoke in this apartment. I pay my rent here. Government don't pay my rent. I pay it. But they passed a law now. You can't smoke in your own home. Now, 
Is that a free country? I never heard of that. In, in England, you can still smoke in your own home. Yeah. Wow. That's Beverly Hills, California. Of course, I smoke. <laughs> I pay no attention to it. But if you get caught smoking out on this, you can walk with a cigarette. But if you're standing still, they'll give you a ticket. They've got to fill those prisons up somehow. Well, they're doing a good job of it. So if you were close to Shug then, do you have any theories about what happened to Tupac? Uh, Tupac got killed, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't have a theory on it. Uh, I don't believe the only person that really knows what happened is the person that did it. Everything else is a theory. You know, you can remember with the East Coast, West Coast thing. And uh, I believe it was all part of that war, the East Coast, West Coast. They claimed this guy, Orlando, what's his name? Got my name. Uh, huh? Orlando Anderson is the shooter. So there might be, I guess. And that's all we can go about. Because like you said about the government, he was speaking out about the government as well, wasn't he? That too. Orlando Anderson's dead. So I don't believe it was probably Orlando Anderson. It was a good, clever hit. So on another interview, what I found fascinating, somebody had threatened somebody, said they were going to kill them. And you said real gangsters don't pre-announce that they're going to kill you. You know, you know guys who've murdered dozens of people and they would never ever say that they'd done anything because of the statute of limitations what makes a good hitman what makes a good hitman yeah a good hitman has got to be able to do it properly quietly and dispose of the body disposing of the body is the most important thing because with no body, there's no crime. And it takes a work of art. Yeah, I interviewed a guy who was an associate of the Bonanno crime family. And he worked under Charlie Bats Battaglia. And he said that the bats had whacked people from coast to coast and um, buried the bodies. And he, he taught him all the methods of, of getting rid of the bodies because um, he'd never got caught. like. You know, putting a dead dog, burying the corpse really deep and then putting a dead dog over it so that the cadaver dogs, if they come out, they smell the dead animal. And they don't go any deeper and, and, and find the corpse and things like that. Anything you can share? Well, any, I'll tell you, years ago, was you know, here, you know, uh, double bodies in a coffin. You know, you had guys, they were friends of ours and they owned funeral home. And they're burying John Doe, but under there in the same coffin is somebody else. Never going to find it. Yeah, he said Joe Bonanno Sr. Yeah. invested in funeral homes and they had double-decker coffins. Yeah. What do you think of Joe Bonanno Sr.? Because he was running the commission for a long time. He got run out of New York, but he actually died of natural causes. So you could say, being in that lifestyle, you know, he, he kind of got away with a lot and, and lived a long time. 
Well, and what do I personally think of Joe Bonanno? I think he messed up. And what most people don't realize, and I know a lot of Bonanno guys. Uh, I know the guy was just the former boss of the Bonanno. I was away with him in prison. He's a good guy. Uh, but, you know, Joe Bedano is the guy who started bringing the heroin over. And that was a big mistake, I, I feel. Because drugs changed everything. And nothing today in the life is like it was in the old days. With those guys that, you know, you mentioned earlier with Russell Buffalino, Frank Costello, or the Sonny Franceses. And, you know, out here in California, there was a guy, and a lot of people never heard of him. But he was the underboss of Los Angeles, Jimmy Cacci. Jimmy was a great guy. He was my, one of my best friends out here. We did a lot of things together, Jimmy and I. Don't you think? Don't you think that the power has shifted though to the people who did get involved in the drugs because that became the biggest profit opportunity for criminal organizations? Well, you know what happened is the bosses became too greedy, too stingy, keeping all the money, and the other guys aren't. You know, when your employees are not eating, you're forcing them to go do something else, and they're so happened that drugs there's a lot of money in it. And there's a lot of time if you get caught. A lot of time. Uh, a lot of people facing life. What's your thoughts on the Gambinos and Paul Castellano getting taken out by Gotti and the Bull and, and that crew? Uh, you know, John Gotti was a tough guy. Uh, no question about it, he was a tough guy. Uh, I think it was wrong in the way he took out Paul Castellano. It was not approved by the other families. And uh, the only one that ever attempted to do anything to remedy it uh, was uh, the Chin from the Genovese family. Could you just, uh, just explain a bit about the Chin, who he was and what he was notorious for? Chin, uh, he was the boss of the Genovese family. And he's also the guy that uh, shot Frank Costello, but never killed him. He just grazed him uh, in Frank's building. And uh, he's the guy to walk around the neighborhood in his bathrobe, acted like he was crazy. And it's a true story. The FBI came one day and looking for him, and his wife let him in the house, and he was in the shower with an umbrella. <laughs> but you know, he got away with that for a long time. It really actually <laughs> worked. Uh, but he was a good boss. He was a good boss, and the Genovese family, good earner, even to this day. Um, So you said the Chin retaliated against Gotti's, yeah, he, he Gotti's crew. To, he tried to, 
Yeah, he tried to have John, I think his car bombed, I think it was. I can't remember right now. But he did, and it didn't work. And then John got the guys who did it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they both ended up dying in jail. Uh, John, John died of cancer, throat cancer. Guy never smoked. Uh, so you go figure. And then but, you had, you, they, they all got arrested and you saw the fallout then um, with Gotti and Sammy the Bull. So Sammy the Bull, he recently did an interview on YouTube, gave his side of the story. He said that John was hanging him out to dry and he had no choice. And Gotti's family, of course, they're saying that Sammy's a rat and he sold them all out. Um, what, which side do you, if, if any, um, go on? Well, I think it was wrong for John in a manner of talking about Sammy. And then there's Sammy. They're all there, him, Lacasio, all charged with the same crimes and everything. And instead of sticking together and fight it, uh, they made a decision to try to hang it on one guy who happened to be Sammy. So... Uh, Sammy, Sammy was an earner and Sammy was a real guy, did work. Uh, he was there for John for anything. <coughs> so for me to say something and get involved in some other family's business, is not my right. And I don't, you know, but one thing I'll say about each and every one of them, uh, they were all men. And there was a rumor of uh, somebody started saying that John Gotti was punked in prison. That's total bullshit. I was in prison. I wasn't John Gotti. And I can guarantee you, I was well respected every place I was at. And that's how they treated all the Italian guys like myself with respect. What made Sammy the Bull such a good underboss? What? What? What made Sammy the Bull such a good underboss? Nowadays, well, in those days, Sammy actually did the work himself, or primarily most of the work Sammy did, he had others do it. But he he had done work on his own, no question. Uh, but he was a hell of an earner, making a lot of money. Tons of money for the family. And nowadays, that's it. You don't have to do the work today. Today is earn money for the family. And, you know, that Michael Franchese, he made a ton of money. Uh, and he's got between 50 and $100 million uh, put away. And I don't know where it is today, but I know initially it went to Panama because I know the lawyer who made that arrangement and he never paid the government or anybody so there's all sorts of games and games are played uh, every single day in the life and it's like a dear friend told me in prison and this guy became the boss of the Bonanno family when he was getting transferred out of Brooklyn he says, Ori, when you get out, 
get back to California. Don't freaking talk to nobody. You got a good life out there. Forget about these people here. He says everybody's a freaking rat. And he's true. He's correct. I mean, there are so many informers on the streets in Benzifers that they're taping each other. There's more informers than police now in America. Right. And, you know, years ago, the FBI and the LAPD, OIC, used to follow me around. They don't have to leave their offices. They know what you're doing today. <laughs> they don't have to follow you around. I used to have to dodge them. I mean, I know they follow me, and they used to like to follow me because I ate in the best restaurants. But, I mean, it got to the point I pull up, I give my car to the valet. There's, I know there are a couple cars behind me. I walk in the front door. I walk out the back door, have somebody wait, and I'm gone. And they're in a restaurant, and they can't find me. <laughs> I mean, those were some of the things that I had to do just to, and I was a free man. You mentioned being well-respected in the prison system. How much time did you do? Was it state or federal? Federal time. I did 60 months. Did you get SWAT team raided or did you just have to turn yourself in? No. You think they ever allow any of us to turn ourselves in? I haven't seen it happen. <coughs> I knew the day was going to come. Because Sonny called me in New York when his son, Johnny, went missing. I was one of the last guys talking to Johnny. Johnny was working at a rehab home uh, down in uh, off Washington in uh, West L.A. And uh, Sonny asked me to, he was going to buy a car. Uh, from somebody in the program, and Johnny called me, he got picked up from Glendale, I'll bring him to you, Uncle Lord, I'll be there tonight, and at nighttime he calls me, he said, look, the guy don't have it ready, I gotta stay overnight, I'll see you first thing in the morning. Next morning, I'm calling, no answer. His mother's calling, no answer, Sonny's calling, me, Sonny, and the wife are on the phone, and all of a sudden, you can't leave no messages on Johnny's phone. Johnny just disappeared. So after a while, Sonny asked me to come into New York, and we had a meeting at my hotel. And when I flew into New York, Sonny always stayed with me at the Warwick. I always had a suite, and I always had a place for Sonny. He always stayed with me. Because him and his what, although they loved each other, just didn't get along. And she... Constantly throwing them out. <laughs> but we had a few guys over. We discussed the disappearance of Johnny. And, uh, you know, they say that that might have been the time and place where Sonny put a hit out on his son Johnny. I can't confirm that nor deny it. But I was leaving the next day. Sonny's driver came, picked Sonny up. I was flying back to Los Angeles. My driver takes me to Kennedy Airport. I check in. I always got to stop. I, bring my, I go up to the gate, and then I'll always sneak in the men's room 
and have a cigarette before my flight. When I walk out of the men's room, there's two young kids. I call them kids. They were young guys. They go, Ori. And my first impression is that when I look at these guys, maybe they're on the same flight and they were friends of my son that I didn't recognize. And I go, yeah, FBI. And I said, well, we'd like to have a word with you. And they take me to the side. They said, look, you could stop looking for Johnny. Johnny's with us. Oh. So now I know where Johnny is. I said, well, I says, I'm going to call their parents, Johnny's parents, and let them know. We prefer you not to. I said, that's his parents. No matter where he's at, they got a right to know. And they said, look, it, we're going to give you, this is your last chance. You come to work with us. You could join us too. Otherwise, this is going to be your last flight on a real airline. And guess what? They were correct. Because my next flight was on Con Air. <laughs> back to New York. So, uh, and Johnny did testify at the trial against me, his father, and everybody else. Which jail did they buck you into? I was in a Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. Is that, it's called the MCC these days? No, that's, and MCC is a Metropolitan Correction Center. That's okay. on Pro Street in Manhattan. So what? MCC is in Brooklyn. Gotcha. What year um, were you, what year were you booked? What do you what, say? What year were you arrested? 2006. So what was it like going into the jail in that year? What? What was the jail like in that year? What was it like going in? Uh, you know, it's something that I knew eventually was going to happen, but you hope it don't. I never dreamed that I would be brought in with all the Italians on a Colombo racketeering case. Because I'm a resident of Los Angeles, California. I have been for 40 years. And, you know, when they arrested me and they came to my home, they had me in the cuffs. They said, why are you arresting me? They had distribution of cocaine. I laughed at them and I said, I'll be out by dinner time. And I was. 62 months later. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but, and I didn't, I still did not know it was a RICO. And they brought me downtown Los Angeles. That's where they booked me. And then I remembered when the FBI, they took me in. They had like 23, 27 agents surrounding my building. Just to take one guy. I was 63 at the time. And uh, when my attorney came, when I had to go for a hearing, his face was white, and he always told me, my attorney was Danny Bruckman, great guy here in Los Angeles. He always said that if I got caught up in one of those cases, he wouldn't know how to represent me and couldn't. And he came, and he's got this freaking indictment about this thing, and he's white as a ghost, and I see my son and my bail bondsman waiting for me. 
And then shows me an indictment, and I see all these other names. Some of the names I did not even know. But there was a RICO indictment. And then, of course, the FBI said that there was a warrant out for my arrest, a bench warrant. There was none. So I couldn't get bail in Los Angeles. And my attorney got pissed. He said, Danny took care of everything. If I threw a cigarette out the window, which I did once, and I got a ticket for it. He took care of it. A warrant. Where'd this warrant come from? No warrant. So I said, all right, extradite me. And it's just a mindset. Once I got in prison, boom, okay, that's what it is. You know, it's not nice, but, you know, I'm going to get out. And then when I seen all the other charges, I didn't know the seriousness of them. But I was facing life in prison, with, especially with that cocaine charge. I mean, it was 50 kilos or more. Wow. It was a bullshit thing. Never took place. All instigated by an informant. But it becomes an indictment. It was never going to happen. But, and I got the back to Brooklyn my first time in court. U.S. Attorney gets up. We'd like to apologize to the courts and to Mr. Spado because Mr. Spado does not have a bench warrant out for him. Uh, they mistaken him for somebody else. <laughs> yeah. The games they play. The games they play, nobody nobody could really understand it. Nobody understand it. Unless you've been in the system. Unless you've been through the system. And now I couldn't get bail. I was denied bail four times saying I'm a violent person. I got friends in England. I could flee the country. God damn it, man. I mean, you know. And my peers are not in Brooklyn, New York. My peers are here in Los Angeles. But they don't care. It don't make a difference. Because what they say the constitutional rights are, they don't pertain to you once they arrest you. Forget it. Throw them out the window. You got no rights. Exactly. My bail was $750,000 cash only. So my lawyer comes in, asks for a bail reduction hearing. We get it. We get the hearing, prosecutor sabotages it, judge doubled the bail to 1.5 million cash only. <laughs> yeah, so you never got out. Never got out. I was, I was in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail for 26 months fighting the case. Now, in that jail, it's, it's just gang and drug infested mayhem. You were in you, state? State, yeah, state. How, how would have, was the prison population divided? Where you were housed? Uh, in Brooklyn, you know, you we had our town, we had our table. The Jamaicans had theirs. Dominicans. <coughs> uh, that was back in Brooklyn. And once they, uh, after thirty months, it took over thirty months before, you know, my case. I got sentenced, and they shipped me to Lompoc. Uh, which they call low security, it's really a medium. Uh, but 
I didn't really care for Lompoc, but there is, they were originally going to try to, they were trying to make that for all pedophiles. And then the government changes, the Bureau of Prison changes his mind. So you had a lot of pedophiles there. They kept it themselves. And then being out here on the West Coast and didn't have no Dominicans, you had the Mexicans. And the Mexicans were a big group. And a tough group and a good group. And, uh, you know, it wasn't bad. I can't say that it was really bad. The weather was cold up there. <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to be at Terminal Island. I'm still going to be able to conduct business. No, that didn't happen for me. Yeah, up until a month ago, I lived with a guy in the UK here, one of my former um, trafficking associates out of England who lived in Los Angeles. And he ended up in Long Park, but it was before you. He was what? in Long Park in the late 1990s. Yeah. For his trafficking case. So what made you want to write a book? I been an avid reader all my life. Ever since I was a kid, I still read every day. Uh, I thought I read a lot of books in prison, but now I see that you beat me by quite a bit. <laughs> I read over 300 books. <laughs> and how I... Reading books, you know, and you're walking the yard, you got a lot of time to think. And reading books, I always try to put myself in a position. And that's when I came up with the name The Accidental Gangster. And walking in wrong prison. Still never thinking that I would write a book. And once I got released, I had dinner with my, uh, my entertainment attorney and a dear friend, George Ham. And he says, Ori, write a book. I know your story, and then we'll do a movie. He said, find a writer. I couldn't find a writer. All I know out here are script writers. And uh, so I sat down, and I started typing. And I just began from when I was born. And uh, actually, I began in prison, then thinking back. That's how I did it. You know, how the fuck did I end up there? Uh, but uh, and then my, I found my co-writer, who happened to be somebody that we went to school together. And he was writing gangster books out of Las Vegas at the time, Dennis Griffin. Uh, so we teamed up, and thus we had the book The Accidental Gangster. I'm very happy with the way it came. Wild Blue Press is our publisher, and the book is doing well. It's got 4.7 rating on Amazon USA right now, which is extremely high. And anyone watching this video can just click below this video to the description box, and there's a link right there that will take you directly to The Accidental Gangster if you want to buy the book. It's right down there. So please uh, support Ori, you know, go down there and check the book out. You mentioned earlier that you were respected in prison, and we've all seen, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Goodfellas or Casino, where it shows the uh, Italian guys in there in the, in the kitchen cooking up the chow. 
Um, how is prison for the Italians? I'm going to tell you something. In Brooklyn, because you have a lot of Italians from all the families. <coughs> and come Christmas time, Thanksgiving time, these guys cooked. You couldn't get the free, you couldn't buy a better meal any place. <laughs> all right. And we, they, they baked pies. And you wonder how the freak did this happen? I mean, you know, and we always shared with other people, you know, the Jamaican, the black, you know, we always shared our food. Uh, that's just an Italian, which is something we naturally do. When I got to Lompoc, there was actually only one other Italian guy there. <laughs> and he was doing two lifetimes. And then was Iggy, and he and I became friends. And we walked the yard together. He was a great cook. And he would cook uh, pasta for me once in a while. And then there were a few other guys up there that they get together and they did some special things for me. Uh, otherwise, I ate tuna fish for five years. <laughs> tuna fish. If you could get your hands on what you really wanted to eat in prison, what would be your favorite prison food f recipes? You know, one of my favorite food growing up was the gnocchis. And there were two guys, they had a chef, I forget where he was from, but they surprised me on my birthday and they made me gnocchis. And I remember, my birthday is December 17th, which is last week. It was colder than hell up there in Lampo. But we sat out there and I ate my gnocchis. They, they did a great job. What are gnocchis? Gnocchis are... Uh, I'm sure that you've seen them and you've probably had them, like little potato uh, uh, dolls. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah. those. Yeah, 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 yeah. When my mother made them, she would, you know, she'd roll out the doll and she, I mean, we call them sinkers. <laughs> but it, it was always one of my favorite, yeah. So did you have a lot of different cellmates over the years? Uh, in Brooklyn... My best friend in Brooklyn was Charlie Carniglia, Gambino guy. And what they say, without Charlie Carniglia, there was no John Gotti. And Charlie ended up getting life plus 40. But Charlie was an expert at disposing of bodies. And... Uh, but he and I became best friends in Brooklyn. Uh, as far as cellmates, uh, you know, there was always coming and going. Brooklyn is a place where they're coming and going. And I can't remember a lot of my cellmates, to be honest. I remember one that, you know, just before we locked down, they brought this new guy in to me. And I would always tell him the rules. How I clean the place, it's got to be kept clean, this and that. You know, because you got your own toilet, your own sink, your locker, and I give them the instruction. And then I would tell them, no, I don't know what you're in here for. I don't care what you're in here for. But if you're an informant, when they unlock these doors, I don't want to see you coming back in.
I said, you understand that? And there used to be a place, they were all like born-again Christian. They had a little room that was on the first tier. And when they opened the doors, I seen him right right there. And all these born-again Christians, they, they stuck together. They were all informants, too. It's like Sonny Frank Shade once told me, I remember it was on Father's Day. He said, show me a born-again Christian, I'll show you an informant. Yeah, <laughs> and damn, he was right. All right, and when when they locked us up, that kid was no longer with me. <laughs> you said you were well respected in prison, but there's always some numbskull that's going to start some shit. Did anyone try and start some shit with you? I had one guy. You got to remember something. When they brought me to Lampo, and we got off the bus from Victorville. We're chained, shackled, you know the routine. And they bring us through this area, and there's big glass, uh, bulletproof uh, windows. One guard back there, and everybody's got to get their name and number. I'm the last guy. <clears throat> Everybody gives their name, their inmate number. He gets to me, and the guard goes, now I want you all to look at that guy in the back. That's Ori Spadel. He's the mob boss of Hollywood from the Colombo crime family. I swear to God. I sat there. What the fuck is this? A TV show? <laughs> <laughs> then they bring you through the R&D. And you got to fill out these questions. You get your bedding. You get your clothing. And then, they, you know, they're always going back to that holding cell. And this little guy comes, Spadel, Spadel. Yeah, what's the problem? You answered this question wrong. Come with me. I said, what question is that? He says, this question, are you a member of organized crime, a gang, this and that? <laughs> he said, you mark no. <laughs> I said, yeah. That's correct. No, you're a member of the Colombo crime family. You're a member of the mafia. I said, where the fuck you get off with this shit, mafia? I said, it's made up by the prosecutors and the press. That, quite, that answer is no. <laughs> and it remained no. Did the guards start any shit with you? Any guards over the years? Uh... I, my my first guard was actually his name was Magania. And when I was putting in my list, my telephone list to get approved, I I mean I gave him a big list. And he got pissed and called me into his office. He said, Don't you expect me to just take care of you? I said, Look, it's our right. These are the people who want to call. You got to do what you got to do to approve them. And then he changed the subject. He said, you know, I used to be a guard when Carmen Persico was here. So he starts telling me how, you know, Carmen had his own garden up there at Lompoc and so forth. And he asked me if I know Carmen. I said, I've heard of him. And he said, you only heard of him? But you're a combo. I said, yeah, but I heard of him. 
I said, maybe I read his name in the paper. But he started <laughs> teaching me with respect. I had one issue uh, because the guy had in the bunk next to some biker friends of mine. And my biker friends overheard this guy say that they wanted to do the same thing to me they did to John Gotti. So I heard about it, and the guy, he was on the upper bunk. So when the lights went out and everybody was asleep, I uh, found my way to his bunk in the dark. And uh, I put something to his corduroy and woke him up. I says, do you want to do something to me? I says, I said, you do something to me, you're never going to fucking wake up again. You see how I'm here now? I said, are we going to have a problem? No, sir, no, sir. Never had a problem. That was the only thing that ever happened. Did you ever get any disciplinary tickets? Discipline? No. And did you have many people visiting you? No. Uh, you got to remember, I was born in upstate New York. So my family's upstate New York. I didn't want nobody visiting me. My two sons visited me one time in Brooklyn. I mean, my son lived in Florida, my other son in California. So, you know, then I had things arranged because I thought I was going to be sent to Terminal Island, which is only 45 minutes away from here. Instead, and even the judge asked, for me to be sent to Terminal Island. But BOP didn't do that. I think the FBI fixed it. Sent me as far, the, as far away as possible. I, I didn't want a lot of people visiting me. My son, he came a few times with his girlfriend. Uh, I had a few other people uh, come visit me. One guy from London came and visited me. Joey Pyle's brother. <laughs> Are you allowed in England now, or because of your record, won't they let you in? I can't see them not allowing me in. My passport was never taken away from me, because I never got bail. I have a passport. I often wonder if I'm going to get stopped if I fly there. Because we interviewed John Elite Gambino from um, in London. He was in London. And uh, Francis, he's been out here, but other people, they've stopped. They wouldn't let Mike Tyson in, but I guess because he's such a big name, you know, they knew all of his uh, criminal history. Well, you see the two names that you mentioned that they allowed in? They're both informants. I know Michael Francis tried to get in touch with my friends when he did come there. My friends... You know, I gave you their name. You know who they are. They told us they didn't even want them in fucking England. Did you come across any high-profile prisoners? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, one guy, they call him Lollipop. Uh, a Colombian big guy. Everyway. Actually, he just gave him, he was an informant <coughs> on uh, 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 El Chapo Guzman. And here's a story. This is something else 
that most people will not think I'm, they'll think I'm bullshit. This guy got arrested while he was getting plastic surgery in, in South America. Got arrested, bro. his face was all scarred. And he's on the bus, we're going to court. And when he got on the bus, me and my co-defendants, we always hung together. But when he got on the bus, he was able to recognize you were somebody. He goes like this to me, I go like that. He had a few billion dollars. Billions. Guy was big. I know who his lawyer was. I saw him with his lawyer. His lawyer had paralegals that were broads. Gorgeous. Now, me and my co-defendant, we're going down. You get to use the visiting rooms in the morning to listen to your discovery. And he'd be there, he's in a room. What they're doing, I don't know, but every day. And what happened was this guy, and they had him on a murder charge in, in Brooklyn. You know, he was a big cartel guy. Uh, I could look up his freaking name, but if you look up Lollipop Drug Dealer, you'll find him. I'll just have a quick Google of that now. Lollipop Drug Dealer. Colombian, did you say? Yeah. Colombia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Juan Carlos Ramirez Abadia alias Chupeta. That's it. Born February 1663, Palmyra, Colombia, drug trafficker until his capture. One of the leaders of the Norte Valley, that's the North Valley Cartel, because I've written a book about the Cali Cartel. So um, these guys were, were rivaling the Cali Cartel after Pablo Escobar's dominance. Yeah, the, big, big time, definitely big time, this guy. Like you say, worth billions. Man, that's a crazy story right there. Let me tell you what happened. If you get into the part you study about it, after his sentencing, he disappeared. Now, he, he arranged, he gave a couple families, a couple guys in Colombia, a million or two million dollars each, put some cocaine on a boat, and then he informed on them. So now that makes him eligible for the witness protection program. Those guys, a couple million dollars each for their family, and they get 10 years each, ain't no big deal to them. <laughs> After this guy's sentence, he disappeared. He's not in a prison. I talked to an investigator. I'm telling a, a reporter, a, friend, a dear friend of mine in New York about it. I tell him who his lawyer was. He says, I'm good friends with him. I called the lawyer. Lawyer said, I don't know who you're talking about. Bullshit, he don't know. He went to Columbia a couple of times. I know this. I seen it. Guy was on the witness, but how much of his $2 billion he had to give our government 
And people don't realize the guys who got that kind of money, they could buy their way out of prison. And that's exactly what he did. And they brought this guy back, you'll see, where he informed against El Chapo Guzman. Brought him back in the court. So these guys, they make the billions, but does that money then end up in the hands of the authorities? Anyway, and it's permanent justice. Yeah. So basically, um, Chapo, Escobar, they're like fall guys, really, in the war on drugs. The money ends up going back to the government. Right. The house always wins. Huh? The house always wins, like in the, the casino. <laughs> that guy, Lollipop, he got a hell of a deal. He's out of prison. Would you say that the rise of the Mexican cartels and the Colombians has reduced the power of the Italian mafia? I don't think the Italian mafia has the power or will ever have as much power as they used to. Not in this country. <coughs> uh, because law enforcement has just become uh, so heavily... Uh, at the time of my arrest, they had the FBI had agents attached to every five, every all the five families. They since reduced that there, and they got like two squads for the whole five families. And if you notice, you don't. At the time that we got busted with the Colombo, they had a massive Gambino bus. Um, all all the families. I mean, we were all in prison. And, you know, there hasn't been much after that there. The Bonanno associate that I interviewed, he was active in the 1960s. And he said back then, the old school code was, you know, you don't harm women, don't harm kids. But now the new cartels have come in. They'll kill your entire family. They'll torture them. They'll video it. They'll put it online. That's the cartels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Is that where organized crime is at these days? Have all the old school values gone? Well, honestly, you know, like my friend Joe said to me when he left, I took his advice. All right, I came back here because I actually had two informants, Johnny Frances and Gaetano Fittaro, Guy Fittaro, who came out here. And we went to the Ivy over on Robertson Boulevard. And I'm sitting between the two of them, and they both had tape recorders going. So, knowing how easy it is, you can't talk to nobody today. You don't know. And don't think that they're wearing a wire on their chest. That ain't the case. And both armistices that was in their watch. They could put in your eyeglasses. They could put in, uh, what do you call those things? I mean, the, the equipment they got, we had 3,500 hours. Nobody had a wire. Search all you want. Not going to find a wire. So how realistic was the Irishman? Frank Sheeran did not kill Jimmy Hoffa. And he also proclaimed that he killed Joey Gallup. Never happened. Uh, I thought the movie was too long. I thought Joe Pesci did a fantastic job. 
Jim Pacino did an excellent job playing Jimmy Hoffa. Played it pretty well. Uh, what am I to say? It was, it's a $179 million bill. And I forgot how many hundreds of millions it has been, whatever it is, has seen it on Netflix. You know, you got to remember, no, no studio would touch it. They got the Paramount. They wanted to do it. Their executives would not approve the financial budget on that there. But it was Paramount, I believe, who brought it with Martin Scorsese to Netflix. And thank God, I, I watched it on Thanksgiving Day at my home right here. And I watched it in you know, four Four segments, I cut it up. Because if I had to go to the movie theater and watch a film for three and a half hours, I guarantee I would have walked out. <laughs> What's your theory on who killed Hoffa? My theory on who killed Jimmy Hoffa? I can't tell you who killed Jimmy Hoffa. I, I'm going to think it was Tony the, Tony the Pro, no question about that there. Okay. Uh, Tony Provenzano. Uh, but I, I, one thing that they did do, Martin Scorsese did, they showed him being cremated. You know, that's one theory that I never read about that that might have happened to him. That's a good possibility, isn't it? Yeah. I heard that he went through a meat grinder, hamburger grinder. That's what I heard. What did you hear about JFK? JFK? There again, it's, a, you know, be my conspiracy theory. People, everybody's heard of the underworld. Nobody's heard of the overworld. Many, many years ago, uh, a guy came to me and he had papers from the overworld. The overworld was Aristotle, Onassis, and that type of thing. The underworld, of course, being guys like me. <coughs> and I know Ted Kennedy went to Aristotle, Onassis, and said he wanted to run for president. And Ari told him, you run for president, same thing happened to your brother is going to happen to you. Ted never ran. Uh... They, Kennedy made, uh, John Kennedy was a great, could have been a great president. And, you know, he did it, I think it was a big mistake, making his brother the attorney general and then have him go against the same people that put him in the office. That was no good. That was rotten shit. He got shot too. Uh, you know, a lot of people are not like me, but you, you don't do that. He wanted to play his own political game. It's like he didn't care for his brother. I blame Robert Kennedy for killing John Kennedy. How was that one? In more recent years, we had the Chomo 
Jeffrey Epstein got taken out or suicided in your state. Do you hear anything on that? I don't believe he committed suicide, I'll tell you that much. When you're dealing with that kind of money, that kind of power of the people that were around, you're talking about presidents. You're talking about leaders of countries. Prince Andrew over here, he's been in the news a lot. Over in your country there. What do you think is going to happen? You know, people used to come to me and had deals where we're going to make billions of dollars. And I said, and I said, you really think that's going to happen, huh? You ain't going to make it. You're going to get killed. Because those people are not going to allow it to happen. They say that if the wealth of this country was distributed equally amongst every citizen in the United States, if everybody woke up tomorrow morning and had the same amount of money in six months, six months, not six years, six months, it'd be back in the hands of the people who have it. So you mentioned there's an underworld where people like you and an overworld. So you're saying the overworld well, took the Epstein out. The papers to me and they showed two guys at the grassy knoll in Dallas. Jimmy Fratiano and Johnny Roselli. They were at the no. The guy had shown me pictures. I never hear about them there. Did Lee Harvey Oswald really kill? You know, there's so many theories that we they come out with. Who does really know? CIA knows. <clears throat> and do those guys, do they work with the underworld and get the underworld to do their hits? Absolutely. Absolutely. When the FBI, CIA, DEA, when they need you, they'll come to you. They'll come to us. They might need somebody whacked. They did it in uh, Mississippi with a uh, Colombo guy, uh, What the hell was his name? He worked as an informant, and he got more information from the uh, the FBI agent with Del Vecchio. Uh, what was his name now? I'm having a senior moment. Uh, but the FBI took him down, and he did the job down in Mississippi to find out who killed those black uh, what who killed those black kids, young kids. It was an Italian that did that. So, you know, if they got use for you, they're going to use you. If not, they're going to abuse you. So with Epstein then, do you think it's more likely they would have used the guards to do it if he was killed? They would have used the prisoners to do it? Or they would have sent someone into the MCC? They could have done it either one of them ways. I'm going to imagine with the guards. Because the guards are saying they both fell asleep simultaneously, which has never happened in the history of that jail since 1975. Right. Were you in that? No, you were in state prison. Arizona State. You were in Arizona State. 
Sheriff, like Sheriff, 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 Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Joe Arpaio, that asshole. <laughs> yeah. So, him. what's it going to take to get your story to the movie level then? Well, we hope that that happens. That's a dream of every one of us. Uh, I do have a couple of writers uh, giving a stab at a script. I have Nick Pelleggi, who did Goodfellas and Casino. He'll come aboard as an executive producer. Uh, unless you want to come up with a quarter of a million dollars, he'll write the script. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got two writers writing on it. I think I got a good chance for a, a TV series. Uh, it's my theory, my feeling that it happens, it happens, then it's meant to be. If not, it's not meant to be. You know, but I, I got a little better advantage than a lot of people because I got a couple of agents in town. Once Nick approves the script, then I know I got a strong script. And then the agents will go out and sell it. I think it's going to be phenomenal. And I'm going to read your book. And I'm going to have a, probably have a lot more questions for you. People watching this video, you can click down there. And you can find a link on Amazon USA, a link on Amazon UK for Ori's book. You've been very generous with your time. Is there anything but you would like to say? Also go to www theaccidentalgangster.com. Yeah, ra rather, than Jeff, rather than Jeff Bezos make all the money. Huh? Rather than Jeff Bezos makes all the money, the, the uh, yeah. Amazon guy. Yeah. Um, is there anything you would like to say in conclusion to the people watching this video? A lot of yeah, young, pe I want lot to of young people. A few things that I still have here. Yeah. You know who that? <laughs> Charlie Bronson. Charlie Bronson. Wow. Charlie Bronson. Uh, we have other photos that Charlie used to send me different things. And this is a picture of my mate, Joey Pyle. Wow. I wish Joey were alive. But yeah. A lot of young people I watch a lot of young people watch my videos, and some of them have got gangsteritis. What do you say to those young people with gangsteritis? With gangster what? Gangsteritis. They want to be gangsters. My suggestion is go to school, get a trade. Otherwise, you're going to end up dead or in jail. Those are the only options you got. It's not as a glamorous. Would I do my life over again more than likely I would? But I do not recommend it for anybody. I never involved my children in the life. Uh, and it's like I say in my book, if I could help one person from avoiding the life, then the book was well worth it then. Uh, no, the fast money, the fast woman, and the fast cars, I do you nothing when you're in prison. And you could attest to that. I think that's a real good positive note to end it on, Ori. And I want to just really thank you for your time today sure. and um, wish you all the best. It was a pleasure meeting you. And I'll say hello to Dave Courtney and, and the fellas in London for you as well. Thank you. All right. You take care. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. -bye. Cheers. Good night.